Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for culture vultures, people who like books, movies, music, artwork, you name it. Go to litbreaker.com and learn how to advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, The Believer, you name it. You can advertise on all of them at once or you can pick them one by one piecemeal. It's very user friendly. Check out litbreaker.com. For more information, this is an advertising network for culture vultures. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is made of ones and zeros. This is me making it up as I go. Uh, hello, how are you? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. I appreciate you tuning in. I have a great show for you today. I have an airplane flying over my house. My guest is... Actually, it's a chainsaw. I have a man with a chainsaw approaching me. My guest today is Chelsea uh, Hodson. Chelsea Hodson. Not Chelsea uh, Hodson. Chelsea Hodson. God, this is a fucking disaster in this garage. It's probably a leaf blower. There's a car honking. <laughs> My guest today is uh, Chelsea Hodson. Uh, she has a chapbook out called Pity the Animal. It's originally published by Future Tense Books. It's now available in an ebook edition from Emily Books. Uh, if you would like a print copy of Pity the Animal, it is available from Powell's, and it's, it's uh, also currently available electronically uh, in, an e in a fine ebook edition from Emily Books as a Kindle single over at Amazon. So you can check that out. It's a very riveting read. It's getting a lot of buzz for a chapbook. I mean, you know, chapbooks come out, they don't usually generate this much buzz. This is a chapbook that people are talking about. Which is a big part of the reason why I was interested in speaking with Chelsea. 
So I hope you're doing well. Happy 2015. I think this is this is the first show of 2015, if I'm not mistaken. Did, uh, did you make a New Year's resolution? Are you all geared up for the new year? Uh, are you unveiling a new you? Do you have that energy, that optimism? Are you doing that, or are you just letting it be? You're just treating it like a normal day, no, no, you know, a normal time, a normal week. Always the noise. Can you hear it? Maybe you can't hear it. I can hear it. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Chelsea Hodson. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to get going with the show. Why don't we do that? My guest today is Chelsea Hodson. She has a chat book out. It's called Pity the Animal. And uh, the, the if you want a print copy, you got to go to Powell's. You want an, uh, an e-book edition from Emily Books? Uh, you can go to uh, Amazon. It's a Kindle single. So the print edition is available from Future Tense. The e-book edition available from Emily Books via Amazon. The print edition is via uh, Powell's. <laughs> I think this goes down as my worst monologue. I'm going to leave it just like it. I'm just going to leave it like this. This is it right here. This is me. I'm a, I'm a human being. I deal with circumstances. I can't control the leaf blower next door. I could re-record this, but I'm running short of time. I also sort of just wanted to provide you guys an episode where you get to hear the sort of things that I usually edit out. Usually I sit here in my... If you can picture this, like usually when this happens... I'll sit down to record. I'll finally get my shit together. I'll turn, you know, the recorder on. And just as I begin to speak, something will intrude, whether it's an airplane or a chainsaw or a leaf blower or uh, cars honking or sirens. And so what will happen is I'll turn the recorder off. I might uh, unleash a string of expletives quietly or even silently. <laughs> and then I will sit here Sometimes for like up to like seven minutes or 10 minutes or something while, uh, the, the, you know, the sound intrusion goes away. That's a long time to sit quietly in front of a microphone in a garage, especially one that's unheated when it's cold. But that's what I do. That's how I, uh, operate here. My guest today is Chelsea. <laughs> 
Sorry, I'm way overtired. My guest today is Chelsea Hodson. She has a chat book out called Pity the Animal. It's originally published uh, by Future Tense. It's available now in print from Future Tense, but you got to get it uh, over at Powell's. Powell's.com has the uh, print edition exclusively. It's also available in ebook format from Emily Books over at Amazon as a Kindle single. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Chelsea Hodson, and her chat book, one more time, is called Pity the Animal. Um, no, I don't think that's a misreading, but mostly it's, um, I mean, the way that I like live is, uh, being very aware of what makes me comfortable and what makes me anxious. So like, it really puts me at ease to see everything one boring color. I mean, it's not even a color, it's just white. And, uh, yeah, you know, material possessions are not super important to me. It's more about living in a place that inspires me and has people around that I can read with and go see their work. And that's what really matters to me. Okay. So, uh, and your book, uh, or your, I guess it's a chat book. How do we classify these things? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a book, but yeah, it's a, cha- it's a chat book. It yeah. seems, it seems concerned with, um, uh, there are, there are financial concerns at the heart of it, you know, or at least, you know, maybe they're peripheral, but you're talking about, uh, I think like how to make it in the city, how to make it as an artist, um, how to make ends meet while you're doing your art and you start to consider, uh, like commodifying your body. Like that's the meditation, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is a question that I like to ask of a lot of people. I'm very fascinated with this. I'm very fascinated with people's perceptions of themselves and how they read their own physicality. And I feel like a lot of times self-deprecation is sort of like the de facto mode where people, who are uh, attractive or striking will talk themselves down uh, or people who uh, aren't quite as attractive, at least by conventional standards, will talk themselves. Down. Everyone sort of talks themselves down. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, no, very rarely do you hear someone say like, yeah, I think I'm probably like an eight out of 10. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. but you are, I, I mean, I've only seen pictures. You're tall, you're striking. Um, people probably your whole life have told you that. No. Um, like how, yeah. how do you, read, um, how do you read, how do you evaluate yourself in terms of, uh, I guess the broader culture, people out there, how they react to you? Like, are you aware of what your physicality, uh, generally does to people or is it something that you have like no a blindness to? That's an interesting question. Um, it's something that took me a while to get used to, um, I guess just being comfortable in my own skin and then. From that, I can start acknowledging and being aware of other things or, like, how others perceive me. But, um, like, I didn't have a super awkward phase in, like, middle school, and most people have them, which is nice. (laughs) You know, like, I just kind of coasted through school. Uh, Like, I didn't have, like, any traumatic events like that in middle school. Like, I was just kind of normal and, uh, you know, like, ran track. And I would get photos of it from that era and I think like oh that, that was like okay I guess right. <laughs> but it was in high school that um, I got really into photography and there was one place uh, I grew up in Phoenix and there's one place in this neighboring city Tempe where you could get your photos printed with a matte finish and that was the only place I got my film developed because I was uh, I just thought glossy was so ugly and it's the only place I knew of that printed with a matte finish <laughs> So I'd always be there, and it was um, the people that worked there were photographers. And this one photographer, 
um, asked me if I could model for her. And I was 16. And uh, I ended up doing it. And the photos were great. Like, she was this really talented photographer that was just, when I came in, she was like, oh, my God, you're so striking. And, um, like, you have such a cool nose. And my nose is kind of large, actually. And uh, just through modeling and working with her and then other photographers, I started to really... um, I guess appreciate my body in a way that I think most teenage girls don't. And um, if I would have had a more traditional, like successful modeling route, I don't think my experience would have been the same. I think it would have been negative, actually, because once I actually started uh, professionally modeling, just I didn't do it hardly at all. But I did have a couple jobs that were uh, like national campaigns and stuff, and they. Uh, made me feel really negative about my body, actually. And that's something I talk about in Kitty the Animal, my chapbook, is that, you know, sometimes it seems like a good idea, and then once you're there, it does, it's not it's not a good idea, and it's actually not what you thought it would be at all. Yeah, no, I've, I have this thing. Uh, I watch a lot of documentaries, and I love uh, fashion documentaries <laughs> um, because mm-hmm. it's just a world that's very alien to me. And, you know, I... I I think I've gotten like a richer appreciation for the people who do that stuff. I think they're artists, but it's a really decadent world, you know, especially at the highest echelon where you're like, you know, these these uh, fashion designers like Valentino and like the world of Anna Wintour and like all that stuff. I mean, it's just it's really uh, sort of crazy how much money there is floating up at the top. And then the other thing about it is that there are these documentaries about models and modeling and you know, the hunt for like supermodels out in like Siberia. I forget what the name of the doc was, but yeah, um, I think I know what you're talking about. I forget the name of it too, but I saw that. It's really, uh, it's really brutal. Like the way that they, you know, the, the, the people who work in the machinery evaluating these girls and teaching them how to walk on a catwalk and, you know, they're like, yeah, she's too fat. She needs to lose weight or, you know, it's not the right look. And it's just, it's very cold. You know, they just sort of, uh, it's all business to them. And you see the looks on these poor girls' faces and it's just like, uh, it's painful. Yeah. The, st- the stuff I was doing in high school when I would have been like really scarred by something like that was so um, like entry level. Like I wasn't, I wasn't getting paid in high school and um, I was just working a lot with local photographers who were really great. And I'd, um just kind of experimented with like local magazines and angling my body and uh, working with light and things like that, which really interested me as a photographer as well. So I really liked it. And it, um, you know, high fashion is really harmful in terms of projecting, uh, you know, people being really skinny, um, you know, underweight and really young. But for a girl uh, that felt in, in high school that she would, I, I, didn't really feel that I was sexually attractive because I didn't have boobs, for example, (laughs) you know, and like high fashion, there's certain things where it just kind of fell in line with what I was experiencing and my insecurities were suddenly celebrated because the clothes hung on me in a certain way. So I was just really lucky that I had kind of this just like low level, but somewhat glamorous experience with it. Yeah. It's like, it's like kind of, it's kind of like the sweet spot. It's like, you know, it's the, it's kind of local, it was like fun. Serious, but not, like, yeah, it was like I actually did it, but it wasn't too serious, and everyone there was really supportive. So it was just a much different experience. But I do attribute that to like my comfort with myself and how I present myself. Is that uh, that's kind of how I learned that uh, all different kinds of bodies can be beautiful. How how tall are you? Five nine. Okay, so I mean tall, but not like uh, you know 
I think women over six feet, that's like unusual for women to be over six feet, but you're tall, you're tall. Yeah. So that's part of being striking. I think taller, taller women get noticed more or something. Yeah. I usually wear heels too. You know, I like it. <laughs> you do. Yeah. Um, my wife is like five ten, and when she wears heels, she's taller than me, which oh, is, uh, wow. yeah, yeah. <laughs> she likes to, she likes to tease me. So, um, so you grew, you, you grew up in Phoenix. Uh, like what did your folks do? What was your, what was your childhood like? It sounds like you, you know, you sound well adjusted. Was, is that the case? <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, my, um, grew up in Phoenix. Uh, my dad worked as an estimator for a, a contracting construction company, which means he takes budgets uh, for like hospitals and malls and figures out what materials uh, it takes to build them and how much it'll cost. <laughs> so his whole career is based on guessing in a way, so okay. like educated guessing. Sure. So he's done that um, my whole life. And my mom used to work for the parks department and now she works for the diversity department. So she had um, city jobs growing up. And they were really outdoorsy, so we were always going on camping trips or river trips. And um, I have a younger sister, so I feel like boys would have done really well in our family, and <laughs> we were kind of... You're like, Dad, I'm, you know, like, I'm, I'm sick of camping. Like, let's go to a hotel. Yeah, it's like we were... Like, my mom is really, um, like, not a girly girl at all. So we had her as a role model, but um, I don't think we were ever as much of a tomboy as you would need to be to like really get down and dirty and like go in this uh, river that's just like full of mud and not shower for a couple of days, you know, like, um, just like we would have trips almost every summer for a couple of years. We'd be on the river for, I think seven or eight days. Which river? And, uh, um, it's called the San Juan. It's in Utah. Okay. Like what? Southeastern and, Utah? Um, I forget to be honest. Like Canyon Land. Drive from Arizona and go north, and I kind of forget what area it is. But All right. I believe so. Okay. Um, but uh, but yeah. So we we my a lot of my childhood is informed by like being outdoors in uh, the desert. And now you're in and now you're in Williamsburg, as far away from nature as possible. I can you know. <laughs> yeah the the city really really appealed to me. My mom was kind enough to take me here when I was sixteen, and um, my mind was fully blown and. It, uh, ever since that, I thought, well, that's where I'll I'll end up someday. Like, I'll just do everything I can to be there. Okay. And your parents are supportive. They like they support your artistic pursuits. Absolutely. Um, my dad is not allowed to read what I write, which is interesting. <laughs> but he's <laughs> he's blindly supportive, so that's nice. He, like, I just got back from Christmas, and he's like, well, you know, I haven't read it, but we're glad you're doing well. <laughs> well, so wait, wait, wait. Why? Like, like, did you tell him you can't read this? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, you do. I mean, that's the thing. I thought about. Please don't read it. Yeah, I thought about that as I was reading. You know, uh, it's it deals uh, frankly with sexual matters, and uh, yeah. you know, I think you have to either be like in a situation where your posture towards your parents is uh, you know fuck off or I don't care, or you're in a situation where your parents are like you say blindly supportive and you feel comfortable enough to be that candid, and um, yeah, you know, I think that's yeah. sort of cool. That's a gift. Yeah, I'm really lucky that my parents aren't really, like, they're not religious, for example. They're not super, they're, they're not at all uptight, actually. They just, you know, that's got to be so awkward to read, like, <laughs> your daughter writing about sex. So I wish that my mom wouldn't read it, but she's the type of person that would have read it anyway if I told her not to. So I sent it to her, and I just said, you know, 
I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I just, I just reached a certain point where that's what I wanted to, you know, I, the whole thing isn't explicit, but I wanted there to be parts of it that were real and true and uncomfortable. And I just thought, well, they'll just have to understand. <laughs> so, yeah, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what you did sure. like experientially uh, because it's interesting. Sure. Like, like for instance, uh, for instance, uh, seeking arrangements, this website, which, uh, I was not familiar mm-hmm. with until I read pity, but it's like what rich men who want basically prostitution, but they want it under the guise of legitimacy. They pay you, you get together, you're their girlfriend or whatever, you know, explain it. What is, how does this thing work? Um, well, I, I say in the chat book, it's essentially a loophole for prostitution, which I believe that it is. Um, I believe that in many cases, both parties do not acknowledge the fact that it's prostitution. So I don't know that for sure, but that's what I suspect is that the men involved see it as this, like, I don't know, this removed element of, uh, you know, that they're like providing for these young women. Um, and you were, con- and you were, and you were considering this, you were thinking like, maybe I'll do this. I'll get some sugar daddy to pay me, you know, 10 K a month. And yeah, well, uh, well, as I write about in the chat book, it's like it didn't feel that removed from what I was already doing in terms of like working. Like, for instance, I worked at American Apparel uh, in college. Working retail is very much as a woman and especially in a story like that, it's very much about your body. You know, like um, I write about in the chat book how uh, they, they give uh, free swimsuits to anyone that would wear them to work. And Wait, we all did it. <laughs> is that is that is that for real? You wear a swimming suit? Yeah, it's real. I didn't know that. Like, I should uh, I should start going to American was, Apparel. Well, oh no, well you know it's like a one time promotion. Like the company is still very new, um, oh. but they were like, you know, if anyone wants to wear it to work, you can have it. <laughs> so and, wait, so uh, you know, was like it that, was it a that, bikini? That feel that. So you wait, stop. I got to stop you. You're, you're going into American apparel, like, which is like, you know, the gap or whatever. It's a clothing store and you're walking around the sales floor in a bikini. Everyone was. Yeah, we all did it. Like no one said no to that. Everyone wanted the free swimsuit. Like we're college students, you know, like why not? (laughs) But I'm just saying like my, my thought, you know, this was years ago. My thought process at that point was that like, you know, if I'm single, I like older men. It's not really that different than someone paying me to walk around the store in a swimsuit while I ring people up. Like, I just didn't, a lot of the sense of commodification didn't feel that different from, like, actually doing that. The line, the line felt very blurry to me. And I know that that sounds a little absurd, but that's how I really felt. Is that it's like, well, you know, if it benefits my art, then why not? <laughs> like that was what part of me felt, and so I would obsessively read things. Like um, a lot of girls that have done it have articles online, like about their experience with it. And some of them were really positive. So. And so, what yeah. did you? And so, okay, just so for people listening, so you start to investigate this. You put up a profile. Yeah, um, the website is really weird, and it's um, surprisingly like low budget, like the website looks horrible. It looks like MySpace in like 2005. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I don't, I wish I still had my first profile because the, um, the event that I talk about happened years ago. So I'm not sure what my profile said. And 
I don't have very many like documented conversations. The one that stuck with me is the one I saved and included in the chat book of engaging with this man of like asking him what exactly he wanted and what exactly he would give me and uh, engaging him in that way. Yeah, some of the guys that like some of the responses that you you know that you include in the book are uh, pretty extraordinary and like sadly not that surprising in a way. Like I know guys. I mean, it's just it's very porny. It feels I feel like so much of men's or a lot of men's like sexual uh, imagination is informed by porn. It's really toxic, you know, and you can sort of see it coming through. I mean, maybe maybe it was this way before, but I feel like it's gotten more explicit and more uh, sort of. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if delusional is the word, but do you know what I'm saying? Do you agree? Yeah. And I hope that um, in the chapbook that it didn't come off as like one-sided because I felt like I was baiting these people in a lot of ways to like, even if I wasn't going to go through with it, like I genuinely wanted to know what these men thought that they were going to do to me. <laughs> um, that like really excited me in a lot of ways. And I felt really compelled to like instigate that kind of behavior so it wasn't like it was coming out of nowhere. It's like it was my own doing. Okay. Okay. So let me ask you this. Like as a woman, because I hear a lot of women complaining about the pornification of sex and how it like it's out of touch with how women actually experience sex and desire and all this stuff. Um, do you disagree? Like does that sort of, does the pornification of sex, like is that something you're uh, not entirely opposed to? Um, yeah, not at all. I'm sure that's, I'm sure that a lot of women uh, feel that way, but I don't like it. That doesn't bother me. Okay. <laughs> All right. But yeah, cause like it, it gets, it gets down to like the heart of your, of your book and like the, you know, the objectification of the body and, uh, you know, presenting yourself as an object. You talk about Marina Abramovich, like I'm not an expert at talking about all this stuff, but I get, mm-hmm. I, I get what your concerns are. And like, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I suppose we're all, out there in the streets presenting ourselves one way or the other. Like, I like to think that I'm detached from that, but the truth is that, and I, I sort of talked about this when I had, uh, like Sheila Hetty and, and, uh, Leanne Shapton and Heidi mm-hmm. Julevitz on the show talking about women in clothes, you know, you, mm-hmm. st- you start getting into things like fashion and physical presentation. And, you know, you often hear people say like, oh, I don't give a shit or, you know, a lot of guys will say that, but like not giving a shit is, uh, you know, a way of, presenting too, you know, one way or the other, you're out there and you're an object and you're showing yourself off. And, um, you know, I guess you have to sort of make peace with that. Like, how do you view it? Um, well, I was interested in writing about commodification because I felt so conflicted about it. I thought, how can I think of myself as a feminist and also want to sell my own body for men, you know, or like two men rather. <laughs> right. Um, like how do I reconcile that? Because on one sense it horrifies me that that happens to women. And on the other sense, I'm really, on the other side, I'm really excited by it. Like, so like, how do I reconcile that? And I think a lot of people's sexual desires are that way. You know, they're like informed by fear or, uh, you know, a traumatic event or, uh, just something that's so foreign that it excites them. Well, or, or like uh, it's it's like you know mor- mor- morality. You know, like it's a bad, when it's bad, it's like uh, attractive. You know, and it heightens the excitement or whatever. When it's yeah, when it's you know, and that's so much. Like women are commodified all the time in our culture, and I just thought, why would I want to contribute to that? But at the same time, I felt compelled. You know, it was really on my mind, and um, 
that's kind of why I wanted to explore that topic is because it felt taboo to me in a way, you know, it took me a long time to write about it. Yeah. Well, you have to get some perspective. So you never actually, did you ever actually go through with it and meet up with any of these guys? No. Never. I didn't. No. Did you ever get close? No. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did. But, uh, ultimately it was just too extreme. You couldn't do it. Yeah. Did you ever like, were you ever like in the lobby of a hotel and you're like, Oh, what the fuck am I doing? And then bailed? <laughs> no. no. Um, a couple people bailed on me. Um, and as I talk about in the chat book, it just, uh, became so much of a negotiation. Like there's so many logistical details to work out, but it, like I would lose interest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So how do you, you, like, how do you settle on money and how do you know they're going to come through? Like, are they PayPaling you? <laughs> I mean, you'd have to ask someone that actually did it. I'm not sure, but, um, right. uh, yeah, I don't know. I just like hated all the details of it. So if it was like, I guess, I guess I had, you know, an uninformed like movie version of it where it's like, oh, it'll just be this way and it'll be really straightforward. And it's like so complicated. And I would just kind of essentially be turned off by it. Like, okay, like I'm done. <laughs> yeah. The thing, I mean, but it is crazy. There are relationships like that. And I, you know, I guess it works both ways in the, you know, it, it cuts both ways gender wise, but I think it's more often male to female where, you know, there are, there are relationships that are financially, they're, they're financial transactions at, at their core. And, uh, I'm thinking, right. I'm thinking of, for whatever reason, Donald Sterling, the, uh, the former owner of the Clippers, <laughs> but his, uh, his girlfriend, oh, right. his girlfriend or whatever, right. that, that was just also strange to me. And he, you know, she owned a home and a Porsche and I was like, cause why is she with this guy? He's just paying. He just basically cuts her a check and gives her things like a house. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. That goes back to what I was saying where I was like, you know, this kind of stuff happens all the time or right. like, it's not that crazy, you know, like, but, um, I don't know. It, it is pretty extreme, but I do think that it happens all the time in, in many different forms, not just money, but you know, any, any kind of relationship is an exchange. Okay. And so you say that you like older men you mentioned that earlier. Is that a thing? I do. Yes. Okay. Like how much older, like you're like into 50 year old guys or um, I don't know. I don't have like a specific age group. My partner now is 12 years older than me. Okay. Um, yeah. just, just not like geriatric or like, I don't know. Just... No, <laughs> I don't know. I guess ideal is like guys in their fifties. There's something distinguished about it. <laughs> yeah. Silver Fox. Um, but no, but like, uh, I just, I like, I like the element of being so removed, you know, like that we, we would be so different. There's something about that that I, that I think I tune into and I like. Okay. And then what about like transactional stuff? Cause older men are typically more established. They're not like searching for themselves. You know, they might have like uh, some income. Like, is that part of the evaluation? Yeah. You know, it just plays into the whole, uh, what I call like the movie aspect of it, where it's like, you know, it's the whole package. Yeah. It's, it's tough for me because you know, I feel like the, the the cruelty, there can be cruelty in love and relationships. And, uh, you know, when I was younger, I always thought that like the cruelest thing was like, uh, unrequited love, which really is in terms of the human experience, like profoundly shitty. Like you love someone, you really love them and they just don't love you. <laughs> it's fucking awful. Right. And then, uh, and then as you get older, like, you know, another component of it that can be pretty cruel is like where men are judging uh, women for, uh, their bodies or their weight, for example, or their age, or, you know what I'm saying? There's very like physical calculations that men make where you know, there's not much that a woman can do if she just hasn't, isn't genetically, um, wired a certain way. 
And then uh, the flip of that is that women will judge men for their money or lack thereof, which I guess, you know, a guy could potentially rectify, but typically, you know, it's heading one way or the other. And do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Some, sometimes I just find myself uh, depressed by all of that. Um, I mean, you can, you can work yourself up into depression about anything, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's just like, um, it's like, God damn, you know, like people, this is, this is the way the world works. And sometimes I feel like I can be uh, too soft or naive or idealistic and it bums me out that like, oh, this is, this is actually how most people are. And like, I need to, uh, be more accepting of that or aware of it rather than living in this like dream world where people fall in love and just like, like the person for their heart or, <laughs> you know. Right. You know, it's like a little bit naive, maybe not as like uh, battle hardened as I should be or something. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's something to be said for the line between fantasy and reality, like what you're what you actually would want to live your life doing versus what, you know, maybe you would fantasize about or what you think you want. And there's only so many ways to like find that out or draw that line. So I think that's something that I explore a lot in my writing is just like where how do you distinguish the difference between those two of, in terms of your own desire, you know? Yeah. So how do you, how do you distinguish? <laughs> oh God, I don't know. <laughs> I'm writing essays about it. I have no idea. So, okay. Um, and, and like, do you have, like, what are your thoughts on, um, things like marriage? Like, do you have uh, definitive thoughts on that? Is that something you would want? Or is that an institution that you feel at odds with? I used to be really against it in terms of what it stood for and the tradition behind it. But, um, Honestly, just something as simple as going to my best friend's wedding and being in her wedding, like, really changed my mind. I just thought, oh, well, you know, this can be really beautiful and this is really special. Yeah, yeah, no, I, <laughs> um, I get I, that. I still, I, I don't want kids and I still don't think that I will get married. But at the same time, I don't feel that uh, my my stance on that is that strong in one direction or another. I wouldn't be surprised if I change my mind someday, but at this point in time, like I feel really committed to my partner and we've been together almost five years. And, um, yeah, I don't know in terms of just the tradition of it. I, I don't like it, but, um, you know, it's so much about ownership, which is what I write a lot about, but it, uh, it doesn't interest me at the moment, but I love when my friends get married. <laughs> what about, uh, like, would you ever change your mind on kids or are you a hundred percent on that? I'm pretty a hundred percent on it. Can you, I may I ask why? Strongly, um, it's something that I'm still trying to work out. It's just it mostly comes down to the fact that I've never envisioned myself as a mother. Like I've never had that urge or uh, had like a vision of myself tending to a baby. The thought uh, really scares me because of how much it would take away from my work and. Um, that's something that I feel really comfortable with at the moment where I just think like, if I don't have that urge, like I'm not going to go there. You know, I'm so, I'm you know, going back to school right now and I do so many things. I just go from thing to thing to thing throughout the day that, um, the, the thought of caring for another life is so overwhelming to me that I, I can't imagine it, but, um, that it's kind of like marriage. Like that's where I am right now. So that's all I can do with it. What, and you said you're going back to <laughs> school. To, yeah. I'm going to get um, my MFA at Bennington. Um, the, I'm doing the low residency nonfiction program. And what do you want to do? Like, do you see yourself as like a, 
like an author, you know, writer of nonfiction, essayist, like, or, or do you have like a, a wider, are you casting a wider net artistically, including like the visual arts and stuff like that? Or, um, right now I'm really honing in on finishing a book of essays. So in terms of like pity, the animal would ideally be one of them. So they're right now I'm doing a lot of research for them. So that's a really time consuming element of what I do in terms of lyric essay where you know, they weave in and out, but I need a lot of research to complete them. So that's what I'm focusing with right now. Um, but I just assisted Marina Abramovich on her recent um, solo exhibition at the Sean Kelly Gallery in New York. It was called Generator. And I was a performance facilitator for that. And that really, working with her, really piqued my interest um, in doing more performance work. Yeah. Okay. So, so let, let's talk about her because yeah. you, you write about her in Pity the Animal. And uh, you went to her show at MoMA, um, The Artist is Present, which like they did a big documentary about, which I saw. Um, and But you never went and sat across from her. That's correct. It, uh, it felt very overwhelming to me, even to just be in the room with her. I felt that she had this presence that I could not endure. And I know that sounds kind of silly, but it just like I couldn't handle it. Well, people know people would sit down across from her and weep, you know, like it's very rare in our culture, uh, especially nowadays with everybody, you know, diving into their phones every five seconds that you would actually sit across from somebody and stare into their eyes and just like be with them. Uh, I think that's intolerable for people or like and, and in ways that maybe they don't even yeah. know how to art, how to articulate. And so like I, I get like how people could crumple uh, emotionally in, you know, in, uh, you know, in manners that I, pro you know, probably mystify them or feel, um, you know, strange and unexpected. Yeah. Um, she has this intensity that's very rare. Um, this like openness and from studying her work and, um, seeing her interact with, uh, her own art, it just, it really taught me how much, um, intensity can be derived from the simplest of actions. Talk about somebody so, who's all, talk about somebody who's all in. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she's inspiring to me in many, many ways. So but how, so I think that's one thing that really struck me is just like the simplicity of her just sitting in a room. And I know that comes, that came across as pretentious to a lot of people, but to me it was very pure. And I'm interested in that kind of purity and clarity. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very privileged position she's gotten herself to in the art community because, you know, she can do these things that I think from the outside looking in, especially when people give it like a cursory glance or they don't, you know, they don't like art, <laughs> um, you know, they can, right. kind of, they can kind of scoff at it or whatever, but she's, you know, she's done the work and has, like you say, I think you have to have a level of commitment, um, to, to that particular way of being over a long, over the long haul in order to have a chance at that. And she's there and she's able to put these things on and people show up and, um, you know, I think it's super cool. And I'm curious how you went from, I'm curious how you went from like kind of obsessively stalk, not stalking, but like sitting, you know, standing on, <laughs> standing on the mostly side. Stalking. Yeah. Mostly like, like kind of like circling her essentially like going to MoMA, watching, yeah. her, watching her sit with people, feeling fascinated, feeling drawn to her, but not having the courage to go sit, uh, to going, uh, to the point where you're working with her. Like, how did you get there? Yeah. Um, mostly the chat book. So I, um, I just 
the moment the show was the first time I'd even heard of her, really. I know that she's very famous, but I have a very limited uh, knowledge of art, uh, even just modern art or art history. I, I've never studied it. So a lot of things are very new to me, and she was new to me, and the retrospective really blew my mind. I just thought, um, like, I have to study everything that she's done. So I did. I, I read her biographies or um, just... I studied every book I could find on her and um, that began informing my understanding of commodification and how she used her body as art. Um, Because in a sense, that's what I was interested in and like, what can, you know, one body do? And with her, it was so many different things. And that really kind of flipped the switch for me where it's like, Oh, okay. You know, you can like, for instance, she, in the chapbook I read about, she switched places with a prostitute and the prostitute went to her gallery opening as Marina and Marina, stu- you know, stood guard in her, the prostitute's red light district window. Um, in Amsterdam? She really was always, um, uh, yeah, in Amsterdam. Did she have, did she have sex with customers? No, she didn't. Okay. So she didn't guess. So, okay. But, um, I'm not as impressed. <laughs> yeah. She's not as intense as you thought. Yeah, she no, she needs to be more intense. Um, uh, I forget. Oh, yeah. So um, anyway, she just really informed the chapbook. And so that's why I thought it was worth writing about um, my experience going to see her and uh, the the gaze that I was observing. And so she read, and, did, she, um, did she read it? Well, I sent it to the um, Marina Abramovich Institute because I met someone through there. Um, the Marina Abramovich Institute hosted a marathon reading of Solaris and it was 10 hours long and I went there a mar- wait, a, wait a marathon reading of what? Um, Solaris Solaris okay. the pronounced the um, sci-fi novel oh right yeah and um, um, I sat in the back for 8 hours without moving and wrote an essay continuously throughout the piece and I'd never read the novel, but I, any sort of um, tidbits I would include in the essay in italics and then keep writing. And so it became kind of this lyric, um, personal essay that I wrote while I was there. So I'd, I was allowed to cut things afterward, but I didn't add anything. And um, so it served as kind of a document of the performance. And uh, they liked that and published it. And when I finished the chapbook, I thought, oh, well, I would like the Institute to have this. You know, Marina was such a big part of it. And um, through that, I became, I was invited to to be a performance facilitator for the show Generator. Wow. Which was her first solo show um, since since the one I wrote about, since the artist is present. And so you got to hang with her. We workshopped with her, and she helped me with um, a performance I did of my blog um, inventory, and um, that was a seven and a half hour performance. And uh, I got to see when I, when I met her, the institute showed her my blog. I got to see her look at inventory for the first time. <laughs> did you start? Just, did you cry? Did with the like? What's it like to actually be with her? I would. Oh my god. Well, it was just. I don't know. She's she's just so great and down to earth and okay. so sincere and um, encouraging. So she looked at it and 
uh, she helped me kind of figure out how I should um, present the piece itself. And that was really invaluable. And um, it was great to work on her show Generator, in which it was a space of sensory deprivation. So that was really interesting where um, me and other facilitators would blindfold and put noise-canceling headphones on the visitors and guide them into a space that they hadn't seen, and they're allowed to stay as long as they want. So wait, but do they get to take off the headphones and stuff once they're in the space, or is they're just in there? No, they don't. All right. They, no, they don't. They never see the space. <laughs> <laughs> what, is the, what is the space like? Is it gorgeous, or is it like just like a room? No, it's just a big white room at the Sean Kelly Gallery in New York. And so people walk in and they're standing there blindfolded wearing noise-canceling headphones, or do they sit down? Um, you can move however you like. You can sit, lay down, um, walk, but are, you just have to move slowly. I was going to say, are people running into one another? No, no. No. A lot of, um, whenever teens would visit, they'd always walk really fast, and I'm I'm like such a rule follower that I'd always lift their headphones and be like, please walk more slowly. You know, I don't like to get way too seriously. <laughs> oh, <I forgot laughs> That's that. just my nature. <laughs> so how long did you do this for? Um, that exhibition was six weeks. Okay. And are you going to do anything else with Marina? Uh, not that I know of, not at the moment. Right. But that was, um, that was a once in a lifetime thing for me. Totally. <laughs> and then, um, through, through that, um, with other facilitators, we did a workshop with her and we did the mutual gaze with each other. So that was interesting that I, I never did it with Marina, but, um, Marina led me, you know, like, to do it with other people, and it was really intense. Like where you just um, sit down across it, from somebody and look at them? Yeah, one of them was sitting, but uh, one was standing, and the standing one was more effective for me where I just started hallucinating instantly. It's crazy. You just focus on one thing, and it's um, – I've never done drugs, but people that I've told this to say that the effects are just like hallucinogenics where the face just starts to morph and look like a monstrous version of itself. That the girl that I was staring into her, I started weeping and I felt really stoic. I felt like a statue, like that I was fine, not moving. And it was just really bizarre. Well, yeah. And it's all like emotionally but, loaded. Like I think about like, there's this, because I'm sort of into meditation. It's very meditative, you know, and like it's being with people and like actually experiencing their presence. I mean, it's hard stuff to talk about because you sort of sound like an asshole when you start talking about presence. And <laughs> I don't know. It's difficult, I find. But uh, I think that's kind of what she was getting at. I think that's part of what she wanted to do. And I think uh, like one of the things that, uh, you know, was recommended to me is like mindful eating where you sit down and like you actually chew each bite of food and you're with other people and like, that's how you're like, like they were even recommending, like, this is how your family should eat. And I'm like, Oh wow. I'm like, it seems I, really unrealistic. It does. And it's also like, I can't stand the sound of people chewing. And like, the last thing I want is a, yeah. I, I don't want a quiet dinner table. Like I got to do it some other way. Like maybe we'll just all stare at each other after we eat. <laughs> but it's like, yeah. I feel like though, I feel like there, that I still, even though I, I don't think I could do that, I understand that it's probably uh, there's some you know some wisdom in it because we really don't take a moment you know everyone's in such a fucking hurry to distract themselves and to sort of not pay attention and to sort of you know cover up whatever's bothering them with uh, you know food and media and whatever else we consume. Yeah, yeah, definitely. 
And one thing I was skeptical of before um, my experience with Generator was the concept of energy. I always thought that was like a new age thing that people in L.A. said. No offense. But I lived in L.A. too. And it's like all I heard is like, yeah. oh, your energy and like <laughs> your, <cheap>. your vibe. <laughs> um, and I just thought, I, I guess I just casually dismissed it and didn't actually think about it. But um, I do, I do. I don't know, after working that show, so I would see how people interacted without their vision. And some people would be repelled from other people instantly, like they didn't want to engage. And other people, it's like they had magnets that were drawn to each other. And these strangers would just, like from across the room, come towards each other. Yeah. Um, and this way that I just felt like couldn't be explained. And I thought... You know, I think there is something to what all those LA people are talking See, about. Now I'm now I'm worried. I'm, I'm like, am I a magnet or am I repellent? I don't know. I'd have to see. I guess I'd have to go. I think it's just a matter. It's like how you in that space at least it was how you engage in um, unknowability. So it's like you don't know who you're going to run into, how many people are in the room with you, what's going to happen, but you can choose to be open to it or you can choose to be really afraid. Or people, you that's, think, yeah, that's what seemed, that's what seemed to be the difference. You think people are afraid they're going to get fondled or something? Um, I didn't see that much. It was just this kind of like discomfort with uh, not knowing when you were going to <laughs> bump into someone, or it's like some you know, like some every, some couple from Ohio who just like popped in with their daughter. So you know, their daughter's in art school, and like they're suddenly like, you know, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there are some people that really like. We're not into it. Other people would stay for hours. A couple of people fell asleep. You know, it's fascinating. Yeah. I wonder what I would have done. I don't know what I would have done. Um, but I'm, I'm, but I like Marina. Like I'm, I'm down for that. I think. I mean, I see the, I see the beauty in what she's doing. I don't, uh, I don't find it silly. You know. So I think I would have probably given it a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you said you lived in LA for a while and then like, how did, and then you got to New York and I feel like you've done like you, I feel like I have a good eye for this, but you're doing a good job of sort of setting yourself up, um, for when you're, you know, your next book is done. Uh, I feel, I feel a lot of chatter happening. Like, do you know a lot of people in the literary community? Are you out there actively networking and meeting people and going to things? And, you know, is that a part of it for you or is it just more like you're living your life and you happen to have run into these people and serendipity um yeah i lived in new york for uh a year um straight out of college from arizona and i worked so much that i never was able to engage with reading sort of the, the literary world in the way that i hoped that i would so i like never could see reading so i was always working at night and i had like five part-time jobs oh, okay and I just, I just like couldn't make it work. Um, I was just doing so much. And I moved to LA. Um, I got a job there. That was a full-time job. And I had a couple friends from Arizona that had moved there. It seemed really appealing because um, I'd grown up in Arizona. And then I moved to New York. And I didn't see the sun for months at a time. And it really depressed me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And um, I was going through a bad breakup. You know, it just seemed to, like when something like that is offered to you. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll go. You know, why not? What did you do um, out here? Um, I worked for a music licensing company um, for a guy that also runs a uh, small publishing company called Kill Your Idols. And uh, I helped edit his books as well as uh, do the whole like office job thing. And um, so that was good, but I was dating my partner 
the whole time I was there. So we met shortly before I moved, and we dated long distance for three years, and I decided I wanted to move back. Wow. Three, I mean, long distance so, three is good for you. That's hard to do. Yeah, and we, we, did, we never dated in New York. We met, but um, we dated long distance for that time, so... That's rare. Um, I feel like it was very difficult, but it was also exciting. Yeah, no, it's good, but I mean, but it's it's exciting for like the first six months, and then it's like, oh shit, I got to get on a plane again. Like, you know, how do you sustain that? (laughs) I I don't know. I thought it was exciting the whole time. You did, (laughs) and we're both. He he's an artist too, so it's like we both cherish our alone time, and it was actually a, a really good way to get to know someone without bombarding them and still like having your own time to do your own thing and what does he do assess how you how you feel um he runs a record label called youth attack and he is a a fine artist he does these really gorgeous um ink drawings wow what's his name let's plug him does he have a website sure it's mark mccoy okay mark mccoy mark Um, mccoy mark mccoy.com (laughs) mcmccoyart.com mark mccoy see i'm glad i asked so uh, so you go back to New York and like th- this time around, like, did you have a new game plan? I guess you have a, you have somebody else, you have a partner. So maybe that makes it easier. Um, like have, um, you, have you, have you had a different, it sounds like you've had a bit of a different experience with the city this time. You've been able to engage in ways that you wanted to on the first go round. Yeah. It hasn't been easier, like financially, for instance, but I made a very conscious effort to work freelance in a way that would enable me to potentially go to a low residency MFA program, which I'm now doing and go to things like Tin House, which I did last year and like do these things that I've always wanted to do. And, um, you know, things that I thought I could, uh, would enable me to take my writing more seriously. And, what's, and uh, okay. Sorry? And we talked a little bit about this, but like, you know, what's the goal? Like the goal is you want to make your living publishing books. You want to incorporate maybe a performance aspect, um, that might be, it's, you know, the performance aspect, particularly like in the Marina Vam- Abramovich brain or uh, vein, is um, uh-huh. I, I don't know if there's that many. Am I thinking of Sophie Cow? Am I thinking of the right person? Yeah, who, like, I love her. Yeah. yeah, she's like she's the one who got in bed with people and yeah. you know, did all that like experiential, fun, arty stuff. Like, you know, I think there's some precedent for it. But to be a writer, um, you know, working. Um, nonfiction, writing essays, the, the kind of work that you do uh, and that I think you'll continue to do um, coupled with like that performance. Like there's not a huge amount of people out there doing that sort of thing. No. And I just, um, I used to make really long-term plans and I don't anymore. I just kind of focus on one or two things at a time. So I think, you know, like a year ago I thought, okay, well maybe I should get my MFA and now I'm doing that and it's like, okay, so I'll do my MFA and work on my book. And, you know, I just, I just kind of do one step at a time and make the best thing I can make and then hope that that thing leads to the next thing. I don't really know what to do besides that without totally overwhelming myself. I used to have a lot of problems with anxiety and thinking so far in advance and I would just, you know, think all the time questions what if what if this well what if this and it was never useful it was never helpful right (laughs) it was um really harmful so um i make a conscious effort to just try and um make the best thing that i can make that i'm working on at that moment like if i can just make that the best chapbook that i can write then that's a good thing 
know. Okay. And then how do you, um, how do you reconcile? Cause this is, I think an issue for a lot of us, um, you know, where it's like, how do you reconcile that approach with uh, the financial realities of life? Because I think there's wisdom in what you're saying. Like, you don't, you, you can easily overwhelm yourself and it's impossible to figure out the future in some sort of long-term way. But, um, you know, it's, it's expensive to live in Manhattan. It's expensive uh, to live period. And like, yeah. like, how do you, how do you not, I don't know. How do you do it? <laughs> how do you think you're going to do it? Well, do, you, do you worry about I, that stuff? I look at, I do. Yeah. To some extent. Um, but what I do is I look at the, my favorite writers and think, okay, how did they make it work? Because I don't expect to become, you know, sufficient off of one book of essays. Like that's insane. Um, so obviously I know that there's, going to have to be other things going on and all of the writers that I really um, appreciate and like their careers teach so that's something I'm interested in and part of the reason I'm going to get my MFA oh okay so um, you want to do the academic so maybe thing. maybe that you know I would like it to be an option someday when yeah. it gets to that point yeah um, right now I work as an assistant for several different people um, on a freelance basis of just for writers or people in the literary world doing anything from transcribing interviews to um, researching to website correspondence, planning events. I I do any kind of administrative type stuff for writers. Anybody, any like high high profile writers? Obviously, if they're hiring assistants, they got to be doing okay. Um, Yeah, I'd rather not say who they are. Right. but yeah, a couple of different people and they're all really great to work for. So that's turned out to be a really good thing for me where one person just kind of led to the other. And uh, so it's built up to be um, essentially full time, but it's flexible. Um, I can mostly do it by myself or like from home. And uh, I much prefer that to interacting with people in an office all day. I'm too much of an introvert to deal with it. <laughs> it's exhausting. So I'm pretty self-motivated. So it's, it's working out okay. I like it. And do you, do you work at home in this white room or do you go out into like coffee shops and do that or like libraries? Um, there's this place in Long Island City called the Oracle Club that I joined and I work out of there um, in addition to my little white room. Okay. What's the Oracle? Is it like a writing room or people have a little office, shared office space? Yeah. It's this really gorgeous library full of old books and they have desks and there's usually only a few people there at any given time. That sounds great. Yeah, it is great. And then, okay, and so what so, is that? What is that? Yeah. Then that's like you pay a monthly and you can belong there? Yeah, yeah. I feel like L.A. needs some of that. Maybe L.A. I mean, I think there are like office spaces, like little shared cafe type. I can't things. remember. I, I had a great studio when I lived in L.A., so I didn't really need another place to work. But um, here I feel like, uh, I don't know, We it, it hasn't been so much of a problem anymore, but there's some dogs in the building that would just bark all day long. <laughs> and I felt like, okay, my sanity is at stake. Like something needs to, to change. So yeah. <laughs> I found the space and joined it and it's been great. Wow. Okay. And so, uh, and the next book you said is a collection of essays. Like, are they thematically linked? Or is it, are you working on, um, more material that's like, you know, has the same concerns as pity or is it completely different? Yeah. Um, you know, they're about power and desire, and a lot of them are about, um, on some level, about voyeurism or perception. So those are themes that I'm working with at the moment, um, and I'm doing a lot of 
research, like I said, for the themes surrounding that. I'm doing research on spies at the moment. And on spies? Spies. Like like who? <laughs> like what does this entail? Um, I'd rather not say like exactly who I'm working on because it might change. But um, no, but I mean like like, C- like CIA, like people who spy, like yeah, yeah, CIA people. Um, so I like if I have if I'm writing something and I have an idea for a research avenue I want to go down, I just always do it. <laughs> like even if it sounds absurd like that, like I'm like I'm gonna research spies now. Just think, <laughs> well, why not? Yeah. Where do you even start? What do you do? I guess there's books out there on spies. Yeah. Like with Pity the Animal, I started with um, uh, Breaking in Horses, which I didn't end up writing about. But it led me to think to these books um, about hunting wild animals in India. So I always just kind of, you know, just look at stuff I'm interested in and see where it leads. And so so you're looking at spies. What else did you say? Spies? Uh, Architecture. Architecture. Like uh, yeah. like like famous architects or like actual like buildings. Um, I mean, I'm oh. a little secretive about what I'm working on. I don't know. I'm just not going to say. <laughs> All right. And so, like, okay, but like That's- when you and when you're when you're conceiving this collection of essays, are you conceiving it as like an entire thing, or is each individual essay its own thing? Um. Yeah. Each individual essay is its own thing, and. uh I guess it's just fortunate in a way that I'm obsessed with certain topics. So they're inevitably, you know, they inevitably have things in common with each other. <laughs> so I feel like it will work well as a collection. Um, and, 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 and pity is like, yeah. pity is written in this. Like I love the, the, the style that it's written in. It's like one of my favorite uh, types of reading is like this pointillistic um, short burst, you know, typewriting. I don't know how to describe it, but you know what I'm saying. Thanks. Um, is that um, is that how the yeah, like sparse? Yes, like pared down, um, but not you know uh, not at the expense of uh, thematic weight or whatever. You know, it still feels like you're getting a full read. So, um, is that the way that the other essays are going to be? Yeah, I mean that's how I write. I just cut and cut and cut and cut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> until and it, it's the way that it is. So um, it starts much bigger. Because I don't naturally, it doesn't flow out of me that way, you know, yeah. but I can kind of pinpoint what, you know, if I'm writing five sentences, sometimes it will take me four sentences to get to saying what I actually want to say. Yeah, no, so, it's a tricky, I mean, it can yeah. trick you that kind of writing because it seems like, oh, you know, this is, this might be easier, but I actually think it's harder. Like it's harder to kind of pare things down to their essence and to also string together each bit in a way that feels rhythmic and fluid and um, you know what I'm saying? Like getting it so that the, the, yeah. the full read, the full reading experience um, moves properly. Like I find that like, I, that's the way I like to write, but I also find it um, harder than its opposite. So I guess I'm like a, what is it? A masochist. <laughs> <laughs> like, it seems like, Oh, I should just be more expansive, but I can never be satisfied with the expansive. I always see where I need to cut, you know? Yeah. Yeah, um, I've just used books that I've really connected with as guides. So whenever I feel lost or I feel like, how can I, how can I make this clearer? I'll just go back to my favorites. Um, Which are Sarah Mangusso, Maggie Nelson, Eula Biss. Those are my 
I don't know what do you call them, the holy grail. Like yeah. they're they're just oh, they'll always lead me in the right direction. Yeah, no, so all, I, you can pick up any of their books and they will yeah. teach you something. Yeah, so yeah. no, I've I've uh, talked to both uh, Sarah and Maggie on the show. Who is the third one? Yeah, Eulabis. Eulabis. Okay, I'll have to pick her up. Like yeah. I love I love uh, Sarah's work and Maggie's work and. Um, yeah, you know, it's good. That's a good, that's a good option, you know, to pick up somebody who's got it done right. I have like Mary Robeson's book here. Um, like I'm trying to think of what was the other one that I was reading? I like, uh, Kate Zambrino. Like she's kind of does similar stuff. Oh yeah. She's great. Um, I liked the phrase you used on, I think when you're talking with Atticus Lish, I think you said when you need to hear the music and I thought that's what I do. Like yeah. when you need to hear, when you need to hear someone else's voice kind of guide you in the right direction. Right. Well, and the, the the thing too is that like, uh, I guess you're working on essays. Like if you're working on like a longer form book, uh, the challenge I think sometimes is, is trying to make sure that there's connective tissue or like a narrative that a reader can follow. Um, or at least that's what I'm up against right now with the, the thing that I'm working on. And it's like, I don't know. Do you, do you know, I guess the, what I'm trying to say is that like, if you're working pointillistically and you have these bursts. Like there has to be something driving, you know what I'm saying? Because otherwise it's just a, an assembly of bursts. <laughs> mm-hmm. do you, I don't know. Do you understand? Like, is that a struggle for you? Like when you're trying to string together these essays, like making sure that there's some sort of storyline or thought process and I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I don't necessarily write from beginning to end. So it's, um, I just kind of accept it as a longer process because it seems to work for me. So I just think, well, it makes more sense, right, from beginning to end. But if I have this, you know, these pieces, usually I'll reach a point where I have, you know, some research, some little pieces, uh, like fragments, and I will print them all out and arrange them on the floor, cut them up, and see how physically moving them feels and reads. Um, and that usually helps for like at a point in the essay where it's kind of halfway done, maybe I'll print it out, cut it up and see how it looks and reads in a different form. Okay. In different order. So you're actually like physically collaging it. Yeah. Yeah. In your, in your like white antiseptic room. (laughs) Yeah. It's like barely enough, uh, floor room. Sometimes I do it on the bed, I, I guess. I'm picturing you in like, for some reason, like surgical scrubs with like forceps and like picking up each piece. Yeah, I wish. Yeah. I feel like if I was a little more, like if I had more OCD tendencies, I would get to that point, but I'm not quite there. No. Well, give it time. There's still time. You're young. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so much time. Well, it's been, uh, I really enjoyed the chat book. It's been super fun talking with you and, uh, I wish you well at Bennington getting your MFA. Uh, I can see you eventually teaching. I think that's going to manifest. Uh, and then, <laughs> Uh, I also wish you well with this collection of essays and, uh, you know, your, your white room. Oh, thank you so much, Brad. It was great to talk with you. All right, guys, there you have it. That is Chelsea Hodson. Her chat book is called Pity the Animal. It's out there now from Future Tense Books in print. If you want to get a copy in print, go to Powell's.com. If you want to get the ebook, it's available from Emily Books. And uh, you can get that at Amazon as a Kindle single. Check out ChelseaHodson.com. Follow Chelsea on Twitter at Chelsea Hodson. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, and hey, don't forget about the app. This podcast has its own app. Do you know that? It's free. It's a free app. It's available for your iPhone. It's available for your Android, whatever you got. 
Get the app on your device. The most recent 50 episodes will be there free. And then if you want to stream uh, the deeper archives, you can sign up for premium for uh, a very small fee. You get to stream everything. That's a good deal. So I'm pretty sure the uh, leaf blower guy's gone. That's nice. I feel like this music sort of drowns it out anyway. Which is another added bonus. I got stuff to do. I'm still doing cho- I feel like I'm still doing things for the move. Still like a list of things to go get and uh, tasks to uh, complete. I still got to hang up pictures. I can hear a chopper now. <laughs> I think it's a chopper. There was an earthquake here the other night, which I did not feel, but which uh, I learned about moments after it happened via Twitter. Boy, Twitter is annoying. What a fucking shitty uh, thing it is. <laughs> Drives me crazy. I don't know if I'm following the wrong people. Everyone's just aggrieved. And here I am airing my grievances about the aggrieved. But that's all it reads. It's just people telling you what they ate and people telling you what they're pissed off about. I'm over it. And yet I'm under it. So. Please remember that George Washington had no kids and that Jean Cocteau was an opium addict. That's it for now. Thank you very much to uh, Chelsea Hodson, the folks at Future Tense, the folks at Emily Books. Go get Pity the Animal. It fits in your pocket. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. Have I already said that? I appreciate it. Happy New Year. Yeah, I mean that uh, in a non-jaded way. If you've made resolutions, I don't mean to mock you. That's good. Everybody does a little bit of that. It's a new year make it happen what do I want to do in the new year create uh, something without it being too painful have fun creating something experience joy I experience joy while doing this podcast, contrary to what uh, the tone of my monologue might uh, indicate. Be excited in the act of creation. Be feverish. That would be nice. Not lose my temper when uh, somebody approaches with a leaf blower. That would be great. Get in better shape. I'd like to be able to run a long way, like like 10 miles or something. I mean, I guess I could do that if I had to, but I would just I would be hurting afterwards. I never do that. Can't tell you the last time I ran more than a mile or two. I want to have lots of energy. <laughs> 